Welcome back to the Free Mind Podcast, where we explore topics in Western history, politics, philosophy, literature, and current events, with a laser focus on seeking the truth and an adventurous disregard for ideological and academic fashions. I'm Matt Burgess, an assistant professor of environmental studies and a faculty fellow of the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado Boulder. My guest today is Smriti Mehta. Smriti is a PhD student in psychology at the University of California, Berkeley, and the co-chair of UC Berkeley's new Heterodox Academy campus community, a group which is dedicated to promoting open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement on their campus. I co-chair a similar group at University of Colorado Boulder. In our conversation, we discuss what it's like to start an HXA campus community and why it's needed. Smriti Mehta, welcome to the Free Mind Podcast. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's great to be here. So we were going to do it a little bit differently today and have a conversation, more of a conversation than an interview, about starting and running a Heterodox Academy campus community. What is that? What is Heterodox Academy or what is Heterodox Academy campus community? What is a Heterodox Academy campus community? I'd imagine that a lot of our listeners know what Heterodox Academy is. Mm -hmm. It's, It's a nonprofit organization made mostly, if not almost entirely, of academics devoted to promoting open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement. I think it would be fair to say that it was founded and exists because many people in the academy think that we are not doing a good enough job at promoting those things, and, and that's why we need an organization. Then the Heterodox Academy campus communities are the campus version of that, which on your campus, UC Berkeley, means what? I think we probably need it a bit more than other places <laughs> you know, in the country, just a little bit more. What it means, what we hope it will mean is that people will be more open. What we're trying to do is just get people together who agree that these values are important and think that we should promote them a little bit more. There is, I think, just from listening to people um, talking, just like, you know, having a pulse on like what undergrads are feeling, perhaps, it does seem like there is this culture of self-silencing. A lot of people don't openly share their views on things. If they disagree on some things, I think a lot of people are just sort of putting their heads down and not trying to openly disagree on things that they might disagree on. And so I think that creates a culture of that's just not very constructive. I think we're not able to sort of get to really important issues or be able to discuss important issues openly. So I think what we're trying to do is just get I I think there's a silent majority that agrees that these values are important. And we're just trying to get all those people together and just have like a presence on campus of like, no, these things are important and we should promote them. So one thing that Berkeley and Boulder have in common is that they're both cities that have national, if not international, reputations for being hotbeds of progressivism. And yet they're also flagship universities of a state system. I would say, you know, both states are bluish. Colorado's probably more purplish than California is. But because it's a flagship school in a for us in a purplish state, the undergraduate student body is a lot more politically diverse than people expect. Is that the same thing at Berkeley or or do people self-select at Berkeley more for what it's known for in terms of its political climate? That's a great question. I'm not sure I have like an objective answer for you, but I do suspect that it is perhaps less politically diverse than students at Boulder, like the student body. I do imagine that there is some self-selection going on, but I honestly am not sure I have any data to back that up. I'm sure the data exists. I'm not sure that that I have data either for Boulder specifically. Certainly nationally, it's true that undergraduates are the most politically diverse group on campus, then faculty, I think, 
And then graduate students and administrators are the least politically diverse, especially in some of the social science and humanities fields. Okay, so back to the, the Heterox Academy campus community idea. My sense was that one of the big needs that it filled or that it's trying to fill, it just started, we're in the first cohort, is that it's one thing for a group of visible, famous academics to preach from up on high in Manhattan. It's another thing to have a grassroots, tangible, campus-oriented focus that can address specific campus needs, that can build networks on campus. And it seems like that's what it's trying to address. What do you see as some of those needs at Berkeley? And would you say that there, I think people often think of open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, and constructive disagreement as being one thing, but they're three separate things. And I think that there are some campuses and some fields where it really makes sense to consider them separately. You know, so for example, Boulder has a free speech green light rating from FIRE. Very nice. good free speech policies, very good open inquiry policies. And yet, you know, viewpoint diversity, I think in, in some, like any campus, I, I don't think that we're, we stand out in a bad way, but I think it would be fair to say that our viewpoint diversity is seriously lacking in a lot of disciplines. And that can limit the scope for constructive disagreement, right? Even if there's good open inquiry, mm-hmm. even if, you know, we're lucky to have administrators, senior administrators at CU that are very supportive of the HXA way. I mean, our campus put out a, story promoting the, our, our group and it's, it's provided a supportive atmosphere, which I, I don't necessarily expect is the case in all campuses. What would you say about your campus? Is it in terms of those three things? Can you first tell me like what you, how you describe like open inquiry? Are we talking about sort of academic inquiry or just in terms of what you're studying or just being able to ask questions of administration, like a why, you know, or just having more transparency? Like in what terms are we thinking about that? Yeah, that's an excellent question. I think mainly the main part of open inquiry is that people can study what they want without fear of retaliation or retribution. People can say what they want, be that in a context of their research, be that in the context of, you know, campus affairs, or be that in the context of, you know, off-campus speech, including political speech. I think a secondary part, which is somewhat tied to viewpoint diversity, is you can have a great climate for open inquiry on your campus, and yet you could still have a chilly climate for open inquiry in your discipline, right? So it could right. be that your campus is quite willing to let you study anything and defend you in the face of studying anything. But, you know, the journals, the peer reviewers, you know, you can say the wrong thing and 2,000 of your colleagues will sign some petition, mm-hmm. you know, saying that you're, you should be excommunicated. There's those aspects of it too. And then, of course, without viewpoint diversity, there's going to be some things that people just don't think to study. So in terms of those three things, I mean, open inquiry, I definitely think that at Berkeley, and I will actually, I should preface all of this by saying that I am a graduate student. And so there, you know, there are some sort of maybe administrative what's happening at the faculty level that I'm not privy to, some things that are happening. So I can only speak to my experience as a graduate student. I think in certain social sciences, and certainly my discipline, which is psychology and within psychology, social psychology, I think things are a lot worse. There's a lot less sort of even open inquiry is not right. Like there are certain topics that I just know people will just not study in our discipline or in our department, right? Like, like I, I really doubt somebody will openly say that they want to study intelligence or, you know, that will just not happen. Even if people are openly curious about things, I have also heard people say things that they found, you know, stuff in their data that they just will not share with the public because of how it might be construed. So it's not even just that they're not you know, asking certain questions is, is that I think I have seen some people be sort of careful about the kind of results that they're putting out in the world. 
I'm not sure that that's such a big issue in other disciplines yet anyway. Like I think a lot of the sort of STEM disciplines and are maybe less likely to fall prey to some of this. But it, it's definitely, I think, in terms of open inquiry, I have seen it be an issue in definitely the social sciences. And there's this sort of leaning towards even being careful about the kind of questions that ask and how you sort of frame your research. There isn't, I mean, it's hard to say whether there's viewpoint diversity or not. There's no open viewpoint diversity. I think there's certainly a lot of, so the culture at Berkeley, as far as I can tell, is, and it's all well-intentioned, is that we don't want to hurt people's feelings and we don't want to offend and we don't want to, you know, cause anybody harm, right? And so it does, I do think people sort of conflate disagreeing with people with sort of being like attacking others, even even in terms of like the kind of research, like if you criticize people's research, or even in my discipline, if I'm criticizing certain research based on scientific rigor, or, you know, the quality of the evidence that's almost seen as, oh, you, if the topics are certain contentious topics, then it, it's almost seen as like, oh, you're, you're not on our team, sort of a thing, right? So this is, this is fascinating. I have a couple of all questions, because yeah. I, I think social psychology is an especially fascinating case study yeah. for this. For a couple of reasons. The first one, which comes up with something you just said and is broader than social psychology, is this notion that criticizing certain people or certain dogmas or even mm -hmm. you know, asking a scientific question in the wrong way mm -hmm. is considered harmful. And right. you know, we all know that impact is what matters and not intent. Is there any introspection about the fact that the movement of police demonization has led to about 6,000 extra murders a year? The long-term lockdowns under COVID and then schools have been one of the biggest uh, hits to educational preparedness, especially among disadvantaged communities in a long time. And there's new stuff. Musa Al-Garbi had a good review of this recently in American Affairs that the, not maybe the main driver, social media is probably the main driver, but a significant contributor to the mental health crisis seems to be mm -hmm. these kind of coddling of the American mind, kind of bad ideas, catastrophism, mind reading. And it's caused the mental health to diverge among liberals and conservatives, especially among women. So there's, there's been surveys that have found that more than half of under 30 liberal identifying women say they've been diagnosed with a mental health condition. Mm -hmm. So it seems like, you know, if impact matters more than intent, it seems like there should be some serious reckonings about these things. And my guess is there are not, but maybe you'll tell me that's wrong. <laughs> I mean, not, I, I've not seen that kind of reckoning happening I think now people are starting to get a little wary of some because, I mean, you know, people have been, the campus has been quite against policing and sort of almost to the detriment, I think, of the campus community. Like we have this like this massive homeless population in Berkeley. Things have gotten a lot worse in terms of we've had, you know, robberies and crimes and all of these things happening. So I think people are becoming sort of aware that some of this like anti-police and like, you know, wanting less policing it's affecting people negatively. The other side to that, of course, is that people want to be sensitive towards the homeless and be, you know, mindful. There is that tension, but I haven't seen like an open dialogue or people sort of being openly introspective about these things or even the sort of things you bring up in terms of mental health. Would you, I mean, of all people, psychologists should be the ones that, you know, should be at the forefront of thinking right. about this or being introspective about it, which I, I have not seen that happen on campus. And just to be clear, none of this is to say that there's anything wrong with 
criticizing police brutality, which definitely yeah. is a real phenomenon. Of course. It definitely yeah. should be criticized and should yeah. be cracked down on on hard. So just, yeah. just to make that but, clear. But this sort of anti-police stance, I mean, it affects the people that we care, you know, that we want to help the most. That's exactly right. right. Yes. Right. All of those things, all those examples I gave, right? It seems like we have made at the same time as we've made helping disadvantaged communities and students well-being our top priorities. We've mm-hmm. done some of the maybe most damaging things to both of those yeah. objectives in decades. Back to social psychology for a second. So I have often heard, I'm not a social psychologist, mm-hmm. I, but I interact with them occasionally. Good for you, Matt. Yeah. Some of my recent research, I've done some social psych type of experiments recently mm-hmm. in the context of climate change polarization, which involves collaborating with, with social psychologists. And so one of the things that as just an outsider seems interesting to me about social psychology is that I always hear that it's one of the most politically homogenous, potentially censorious disciplines, mm-hmm. and yet it has also produced some of the biggest giants in the so-called heterodox community, including mm-hmm. the, the most of the founders of Heterodox Academy. So right. what's that about? Well, wouldn't you think that if you're in an environment where some of this stuff is the worst, that it would compel people to do something about it? Well, that's, I think that's a fair hypothesis, but then why is it that social psychology is so different in that respect from, say, English or, say, ethnic studies or rhetoric? Like, why is it more, like, lean more, to, more leftist than other disciplines? No, why are there so many, you know, if social psychology is, is one of these model disciplines for all of the viewpoint diversity, censoriousness, chilly climate problems in academia, mm-hmm. it seems like there's many disciplines that are identified in that way. Yeah. History, English, classics, mm-hmm. you know, being some examples besides social yeah. psychology. And yet it seems to me that social psychology produces an unusually high number of heterodox, famous heterodox people compared I to mean, those other disciplines. It's a great question. Not something I thought of before, but I do, now that I think about it, one of the reasons could be, and this is what really amazes me sometimes, is that I think that of all people, if there's some in some discipline, if people should really be cautious about things like groupthink, it should be social psychologists, right? Yeah. We do look at these sort of interpersonal dynamics and how, yeah, group processes. I mean, that is one of the sort of some of the original studies, like some of the really classic studies in psychology are lean towards this way in social psychology, lean this way, right? Like group processes, conformity, right? The effects of conformity and groupthink and how groups affect the individual sort of thoughts and behaviors. So. Yeah, I think if if you're in touch with the history of the discipline, then all of this should worry you. So let me ask the flip side of Mm -hmm. the same question. Why doesn't it worry more people? How do people who are okay with the censoriousness, the chilliness, the lack of viewpoint diversity, how do they deal with the cognitive dissonance of that (laughs) in contrast to the the lessons of the history of the field, if, if I'm hearing you right? Yeah, well, because they don't know about, you know, the research behind cognitive dissonance because they don't read, you know, actual old stuff. They just listen to what's being said nowadays and just go with it is would be my cynical take on it. You know, when agreeing with people and just going along with what's being said and disagreeing with, you know, standing up to a majority is difficult, right? And if you're just being introduced to the discipline, you know, post, I would say, maybe, yeah, 2014, 2015, which is what people say, like a lot Mm -hmm. of the woke stuff started happening, then there are no incentives to actually challenging what you're being told. There isn't as far as and I mean, it, it does break my heart to say this, but even at Berkeley, like the amount of sort of digging that we do into the history of the discipline and actually studying classic theories and stuff like that, it's very minimal. 
there's this culture of yeah, sort of not, you know, putting your head up and not thinking critically about the discipline as well. Selectively thinking critically about the Selectively discipline. Selectively thinking critically about the discipline, yeah. So sort of challenging the, the research that you don't agree with and really being, you know, questioning the things that you think are either might lead people to draw conclusions that you don't agree with. Those are, you know, challenged a bit more. And then stuff where, since I've been here, I mean, the amount of confirmation bias that happens in my discipline is just, it's staggering where it, you can tell so many people are not even trying to ask real questions. They're simply, they have an idea about how things should be. And then they just go about trying to prove that right. And I think- Advocacy research exactly. or stealth, stealth oh, yes. advocacy. Let me steal man your discipline or I'm going to mm-hmm. help have you steal man your discipline okay. just in the, in the interest yeah. of the, mm-hmm. the HXA way. There have been some areas where the push towards more diversity and more inclusion, you know, as is defined by the campus zeitgeist, has maybe been consistent with or aligned with viewpoint diversity. One example I can think of would be the whole weird thing. Mm -hmm. We used to assume that Western undergrads were representative psychologically and cognitively of everybody, and it turns out they were actually uniquely unrepresentative, right? Weird, which is Western educated, industrialized, rich and democratic countries mm-hmm. are, you know, Joe Henry just has a whole book on this called The Weirdest People in the World about how, you know, not only yeah. are we not representative, we're kind of, we are the outliers in many respects. So that would be, an, I think, an example of where, you know, pushing for more non-weird samples, it's clearly to the good, clearly in the interest of viewpoint diversity and better science. Can you think of any other examples? There are so many, you know, like, I mean, I love psychology, like I wouldn't be here if and I think, I mean, think about the way we treat mental illness, right? Or the way we used to treat mental illness and the way that has shifted in the past hundred years, right? I do think we Mm -hmm. owe all of that to psychology as a discipline. Mental health issues is a big one. I mean, education research, psychological research that informs, I think education is also extremely beneficial. I'm not sure if that's answering your question exactly. But no, I think that's a great example. And actually, yeah. there's an example that's personally relevant to my family. So my grandfather was a justice on the Canadian Supreme Court. And in the late 1980s, he asked for a short leave of absence to treat depression. And the chief justice at the time mm. forced him to resign. And then more recently, there was a, a justice who just disappeared for, I think, several weeks. It turns out he was suffering from, from some kind of mental illness. And it was completely different. He was treated with compassion. He was allowed right. to keep his seat. So that's, I think that's an anecdotal illustration of the way in which what you just described mm-hmm. has benefited. Whereas I do think that there's something to the critique of the modern discourse that it crosses over from de- sometimes from destigmatizing to valorizing and mm-hmm. fetishizing mental illness in right. a way that, that I think yeah. uh, is harmful to people's mental health. I do think it's also you know, the shift from stigmatizing to not stigmatizing has right. been for the better. And I'm glad to see that. I think other shifts like, you know, society's attitude on LGBT rights right. has changed enormously yeah. in my lifetime. I remember, you know, I'm not that old, but <laughs> being in high school and, <laughs> you know, having to feel brave or feel like I had to steel myself to, you know, stick up for people against that, mm. against homophobia in the same way mm-hmm. that I sometimes feel like I have to steel myself to be a moderate in academia. Yeah. No, <laughs> an unapologetic, hurt. outspoken yep. yeah. one. Back to the HSA community, what do you hope yours will accomplish? What are your HSA community's goals? Again, I think what we're hoping to accomplish is providing a hub for people on campus who would want to, you know, 
speak openly about things or actually try to have conversations. I mean, you know, there's so many important discussions we need to have as a campus, like, yeah, what to do about People's Park or like the homeless situation, or Mm -hmm. should we or should we not accept the SAT and the GRE in our admissions? These are really, really important questions that we just are not having open discussions about. And so I think it would just be a hub for people to have maybe just yeah offer some kind of moral support to know that we're here if people need to either discuss these things. You know, we have faculty members that there's sort of massive overreach with a lot of the DEI bureaucracy in certain departments in terms of their hiring processes and stuff like that. And so one thing we would want to do is also just figure out what is this DEI bureaucracy can and cannot do in terms of, you know, their interference in departmental matters, because I think a lot of faculty don't even know Right. If I think if somebody from DI tells them something, I I don't think people know, is that okay? Is that not okay? Like, what is actually their purview? And so I think just making that more transparent or just giving faculty more resources about how to deal with that, I think would be something we want to do. And then if some things happen on campus where, I mean, we thankfully haven't had anything egregious happen on campus lately in terms of like, you know, violating free speech or, you know, trying to get people canceled or like, you know, fired and stuff like that. But if something like that does happen, we want to have like, just a support network of people who can back people up if that's needed. But more than anything, I think trying to make it okay to sort of openly share your viewpoint, right? Not be afraid of speaking up and not feel like you will be vilified for just, you know, sharing your thoughts. And I mean, you asked this question of like, oh, what are the students, you know, what is the political orientation of the students? And my question to you, Matt, would be, isn't college the place where people should come to figure that out? I think that's a great question. Now, I believe studies done by HXA and others find that- political orientation don't change. They don't change. But for that's most a part. feeling, right? That's a feeling. Yeah. Okay, so I grew up in India. And when I went to the US, you know, and started college, I remember somebody at some point asking me, I have recently been reflecting on just how apolitical my upbringing was like, so somebody asking me, like, are you a, a progressive or people use so many labels in this country? And I'm generally just not, I don't believe in like labeling myself. And somebody asked me, like, are you liberal? Are you this or that? And to me, it sounded like they were asking me, like, what's your favorite baseball team? I'm like, I don't have one. Like, I just don't have like an affiliation in that sense. And I think that can be very liberating, right? Like, it's like, I do think that college should be the place where you're not coming in with though I'm already X, Y, or Z, but like, be exposed to ideas so you can figure out what speaks to you or which ideas you want to adopt or not adopt or adopt after adapting in some way, right? I completely agree with that now. And I think that you're clearly ahead of the curve for most people in figuring that out. I maybe started that journey kind of towards the end of, of my college. But I do understand the appeal of a tribe because to be mm. honest, I was somewhat of a kind of card-carrying progressive activist when I was in high mm. school. So I mean it was a different time. So like what it meant yeah. and what it looked like was was different. But, you know, for example, I, I was quite involved in this organization, which I think is a great organization called Free the Children or Kids Can Free the Children. At some point it changed the name from the latter to the former. Started by this Canadian guy, Craig Kilberger, who was, I think, 12 at the time that he started it. And the premise was to raise money to build schools in developing countries and to fight against child slavery and child labor. Again, you know, especially overseas, the the sweatshop stuff. Yeah, so it was great. I got involved in that. I co-founded a chapter of that in high school. And then I founded a chapter of it in CEGEP, which is this weird, in Quebec, there's this weird, where I grew up, there's this weird, Mm -hmm. like, school in between high school and college. 
uh, called Sejap. And so I went to, I mean, most, honestly, mostly what I did was campaigns to, to raise money and to kind of to raise awareness about the issues on the campuses that I was on. I occasionally went to protests. And there was one time where I got to go to a Canadian youth activist conference. It was called hmm. Grasping Globalization. That was the big social justice issue, you know, in like 2001 or whatever nice. year it was. And I remember that was actually, I think that conference was really formative for me in terms of both understanding the appeal of those kinds of activist communities, but then also hmm. understanding like the problems with them. So it was like, you know, you get into this room with like like-minded young people who are ambitious and energetic and smart. And you do these, you know, team building things about, you know, how do you speak passionately and you write each other warm fuzzies that you put in these little brown bags that you take <laughs> home afterwards. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's people these days kind of talk about it as, as you know, John McWhorter, for example, as, as a quasi-religious experience. Right. I think that's accurate. And I think that is part of what became kind of a nagging concern about it. And then also just, I was like, we are, the thought that, that I continue to have this day is like, okay, so we are these passionate young people who can identify these problems that, you know, people haven't solved yet. And yet, you know, we still are in some of the societies that have come the closest to solving those problems of any societies in history, kind of by mm -hmm. a lot, right? And, you know, if you talk to adults, it's not like they're saying, you know, you're wrong, child slavery is good, right? They agree yeah. with you on the basic moral premise of what you're about. And so at some point, you know, you can be as hot-headed of a young person as, as you like. And I was a decently hot-headed young person <laughs> going on a decently hot-headed middle-aged person. Even I was like, you know, there's something a little bit illogical to the notion that a couple of teenagers who haven't been to college yet have some special insight into how to solve the deeper issues, right? I mean, we can definitely, and we should call out blatant wrongs like child slavery and, and child mm -hmm. labor, right? And we definitely can and should do things like raise money for important right. causes. When it comes to things like how much globalization is the right amount, like yeah. probably not the people who should be asking. It kind of reminds <laughs> me of now that I work in, in climate, one of the, the discourses that bugs me on both sides is the discourse about Greta Thunberg. Right. Conservatives will say, you know, Greta Thunberg, you know, her ideas about economic policy are so bad, to which my response is, of course they are. She's 16 and doesn't go to school. Yeah. That's not her job right. is, I, mean, I know she's older than 16. Be now. a hot-headed, um, yeah, young person. Her job yeah. is to raise awareness right. about climate change and she's yeah. crushing it. Yeah. She's, you know, maybe the single most effective person at that in the history of the world recently, yeah. like, or at least one of the top five. Now, to be fair to the conser her conservative critics, I think it is true that sometimes people on the other side take her more seriously than they should on policy, mm. right? Mm -hmm. And so that's kind of, and again, if you're like a climate expert, and you're listening to Greta Thunberg on climate policy, I question how sincerely you believe you're a climate expert. <laughs> and to be fair, it's largely activists and not experts who do kind of say we should listen to Greta Thunberg on policy. And also to be fair, Greta Thunberg herself, when, often when she testifies, she'll say, mm -hmm. read the IPCC. You know, when she wrote her book called The Climate Book, she had a bunch of experts write. So mm -hmm. I actually think that the some of the criticism of, you know, her elevation is kind of like a quasi-religious totem for the movement is fair. But I, I think that there are some important nuances and, and some of it is not fair. I mean, you raised some very, very, very interesting things here, right? I mean, one would be even the fact that you were discussing issues like child labor, which is not, it might happen in the US. I assume it's much less than in other parts yes, of the world. Yes, I think that's fair to say. I'm not an expert in the specifics. I think exactly. it's fair to say that it probably does happen in the US, particularly in some of the there have right. been some stories about this, like child sex trafficking in the right. context of undocumented right. migrants. Probably in, not in nearly LA, as but, bad but as not, places like yeah, India and China. 
or even climate change, right? And I think I do sense a lack of sort of global context on campus, as far as I can tell. The kind of issues people are fighting now, I feel like are things that only affect them. There's this weird narcissism of like, oh, microaggressions against, you know, this. And, you know, we were like, we had a strike last semester for graduate students, and they just seem to fight against, I think graduate students, at least on our campus, as far as I can tell, think they are the ones who are oppressed. Right. So it's not even sort of this activism that's in the benefit of somebody else or some bigger causes. It's a lot about, yeah, just sort of this navel gazy way of trying to be an activist. I think that's one thing. Just before you go to the other thing, that really resonates in the, I think climate change is one of the most frustratingly visceral examples of that. Right. Right. You you hear messages that sound like climate change is going to kill us all. And the solution is we should focus on our feelings and we shouldn't talk to anybody else who's, you know, different from us. It's kind of some way you're like, are you sure the thing you care about isn't your feelings? And I feel like it just comes from this sense of like not having like a understanding of world history or even what's going on in the rest of the world. Like here we're talking about, you know, I mean, people keep like there's pronouns everywhere. I have never stated my pronouns once. I'm like, I don't care when I'm in a classroom. I'm a student. I'm a teacher. Who cares about my gender? And if you honestly cared about things like that. Think about what's happening in Afghanistan right now, right? Women are being denied an education, right? There are women around being shot in the head for not wearing a headscarf. Like if you honestly cared about gender issues, you would not be worried about your pronouns. You would be worried about those things. Okay, let me steal men for a little bit. I agree with you that there's too much this kind of, you know, always state your pronouns at the beginning of everything. I agree with you that on balance, I don't agree with it for, you know, the main two reasons being it encourages people to think that their gender identity is the most important thing about them, which I think right. is backwards. And then also, in my experience, there's, you know, I encounter lots of people on, on campus who have, you know, non-gender conforming or non-binary mm-hmm. gender identities. Yeah. I think there's a lot more diversity in that community than people think about what right. they want, right? There's some people who don't necessarily want to have to talk about their minority gender identity as the first thing that they say when they meet somebody. But just a steel man, I think. Can I try steel manning this time? Yeah, please do. The only argument I have ever heard in favor of using pronouns that has seemed to like hold some weight for me is that it might make somebody else, you know, that you're around feel more comfortable sharing their pronouns if their pronouns are different than what you would, you know, expect them to be. That's the only argument that I've ever felt like has some credibility. Like, oh, you should share them just because it would make other people comfortable. But to that, I would say. There are so many more ways that you can make other people feel comfortable around you doing something like that, right? Like I see people all the time where they will state their pronouns and not even bother to learn the names of anybody around them. And it's like, if you honestly cared about people as individuals, like, you know, maybe bother to get to know their names and, you know, start with nouns first and then we'll move on to the pronouns, you know? Yeah, I think I think you raise a good point. And I actually think that as an instructor, there's a very good way, at least the best way I've thought of so far to walk that line is that I always in the just once in the first class, Mm -hmm. I'll say, you know, if you have nickname or pronoun information, you know, for example, I go by Matt, you know, my pronouns are he, him, his, feel free to send me an email or there's a little thing you can do in like our system where you can change it. And then I see it on my class list. But then I don't go around saying, okay, now tell it now everyone in the class, tell me your pronouns. And I kind of think that's, that's, that's a way to do the thing that you were talking about, about kind of making it okay, making people feel okay sharing it if they want to share it without yeah. kind of making everybody share it. Just quickly back to the point about women in Afghanistan and other places mm-hmm. having much worse. I think that's a good point, but I, I think a steel man counterpoint to that would be, you know, we don't really have control over what happens in Afghanistan. 
some people may disagree with that. But but mm-hmm. I, I think that the the two most common counter arguments to that that I've heard are, you know, one is you can walk and chew gum at the same time. So we can call out, you know, uh, injustice here and there at the same time. Mm-hmm. And those are not mutually exclusive. And then the second one would be we have more control over this came up in the context of the, you know, post post George Floyd, right? A lot. Mm-hmm. You know, so this this horrific murder happened in Minneapolis. Mm-hmm. You know, why are we talking about non-police related issues in here? And one of the, you know, common answers to that or preemptive answers to that was we have agency here. We have more control over our environment than we have over some other environment somewhere else. Sounds like you're gonna disagree with I, that. So please do. I love how you can tap on my face. Okay. I disagree with that in the sense that well a couple of things, right? I mean, we don't have control over most things. And I'm, I certainly don't count myself as a, like an activist. I don't think if you're a researcher or a scientist, you should. But I mean, as a social psychologist, right? You could, I mean, I see this sort of hyper focus on these black and white issues now. So for example, like if you care about prejudice and you care about stereotyping, right? You could study it in a more global context, right? There are things that you could study in a way they can be generalizable to other places. If you really cared about sexism, instead of like, like, for example, we read papers that are about, oh, you know, there's bias in academia and it's mostly focused on, you know, American context, or there's, you know, right. bias in evaluations of how men and women, like their idea of sexism is, oh, we're getting 0.03 points less women are, you know, being evaluated more negatively, 0.03 on average than men. That's yeah. their idea of trying to and find And using sex- American categories too, Exactly, right? exactly, right? Where you could be doing yeah. that same research, taking a broader context. And I do think that, especially as social psychologists, I do think it's incumbent upon us to do that, right? Like instead of just focusing on a very... And I mean, your idea that we don't have control over that, I kind of disagree with that, Matt. Like I think the US has an outsized influence on the rest of the world. And it should it should be thought of as a responsibility. Like, I'm not saying we can change things in a year or two, but like it does, you know, the things that happen here. And unfortunately, even I think the American academies have an outsized influence on American culture. And that should be thought of as a responsibility. I'm not saying we can stop people from killing each other in Afghanistan right now, but certainly it's something that we can think about in the long term. And I think broadening our perspective is one way to at least try to get there. Yeah, so... I think a really interesting point that comes out of that is the following. And, and by the way, I don't completely agree with the notion that we can't influence over there either. I was just raising that as a, right. a steel man. Yeah. Right? Okay. But I think I think you're right. One of the ways that we can, I mean, there, there's two broad types of ways we might be able to influence, right? One is direct or indirect. And I think that the last 20 years have shown that the ability of the US or any other country to directly by force change another society is more limited than we thought, right? Yeah. That even if we wanted to go and imperially export democracy, which some people would argue we shouldn't want to do, but even yeah. if we did want to do, I think the last 20 years have taught us that it's, it's really, really hard to do that. The second yeah. indirect way is, is by influencing through culture. And here's yeah. where I think mm-hmm. there's actually a really interesting points made by the left and the right, where it would be great if they talked to each other more, is I think that the left says, you know, basically, one way to basically turn that argument into an argument from focusing on issues at home is we get our own house in order, we role model, you know, what a just society looks, and that influences the rest of the world. Now, the, I think the conservative critique of how that's practiced today, often, is that if we do so in a way that is sometimes, not always, but sometimes extremely and sometimes overtly self-hating and kind of questioning our own legitimacy and questioning the degree to which, maybe questioning is the wrong word, 
not acknowledging the degree to which our society has made enormous and largely historically unprecedented progress in a lot of issues mm-hmm. that progressives would identify as justice. Not recognizing that and not being proud of that and not recognizing the uniqueness of that, I think out of fear of it coming across as or being internalized as Western supremacist in somehow yeah. or you know colonialist or whatever, also then erodes our legitimacy to influence other countries, right? If we ourselves are saying we don't have any moral, you know, we're no better than anyone else. In fact, you know, we're uniquely rapacious and oppressive, but you should change your gender norms, right? The, the obvious response to that is why when you just said you don't have the authority to tell us anything? Yeah, I mean, this, this is such a fascinating thing to because there's so many threads we can like pull on here. One would be, yeah, like how, well, first of all, like, how do you help somebody else without being in a without thinking that you're in a position to be able to help somebody right like it does come from the sense of like i don't i don't want to use the word superior but like you 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 do think that oh you're in a position to be able to help others the other thing of course is that i do sincerely think that charity begins at home right that's kind of what you're saying that we get our things in order first before we go around helping others the problem with that of course is that if you're only focusing on your own context and at some point right it goes from fighting, you know, racial inequality and the civil rights movement to now microaggressions are this massive thing that everybody's talking about. And or bringing segregation back, right? Ra- One of my right. biggest concerns, I mean, you know, racially segregated graduations, oh, that's, um, a lot of rec centers have racially segregated yoga classes and things like that, racially <laughs> segregated, you know, faculty affinity groups. The more we become intolerant on both sides of people who disagree with us, the more we segregate socially and even institutionally in terms of, right, is one of the visions that seems to be putting, being put forward now for how do you deal with the lack of political diversity in academia is mm-hmm. like build conservative academias. To be clear, I, I don't think that's what UATX is doing, but right. they're definitely, you know, I mean, the New College of Florida, people saying they want it to be Hillsdale of the, so- of the South, right? What is Hillsdale? Mm. Hillsdale is a, I think, fairly explicitly conservative institution. And mm. so is that like Fox News versus CNN, Fox U and CNN U? Is that like a, a happy yeah. future? The other thing that just really worries me as you know, an economist is there's a lot of research in economics and in political science that suggests that a key political precursor to social safety nets mm-hmm. is social solidarity. So for example, there was a study of Sweden that found that uh, in Sweden that found that Swedish immigrants willingness to support safety nets for other Swedish immigrants dependent mm-hmm. on how much they identified with the Swedish society. There's a study of I think it was mostly European countries that found that the cultural solidarity between rich the degree to which the rich identified culturally and socially with the poor was a good predictor of how much they would be willing to support mm. safety net spending. There's also, you know, work, you know, by a lot of progressive scholars and I don't know that the people who wrote those first two studies aren't progressive, just to be clear, but there, mm-hmm. but there's one of the foci recently, for example, is a good book on this called The Sum of Us by Heather McGee. Mm-hmm. talks about how the support for social safety nets among white Americans fell after the Civil Rights Act. It's sort of an example of the way that the, the book talks about it, which I think is a reasonable way to, to think about it, is that you know racism is, in effect, harmed poor white Americans too. But I think the kind of social political lesson from all of those studies is if we are pursuing reductions in inequality that at some level are going to have to be supported by policy and by the mm-hmm. body politic, and we're doing that in ways that are intentionally dividing people, I think mm-hmm. we're just making it harder to actually have those policies. 
Yeah, you know, this fracturing is just not healthy. Even things yeah. like microaggressions. I mean, what really bothers me is that if the goal is to get people who are different from each other to talk to each other, that is not the, the, the way you... It's exactly the opposite, right? Like if you're constantly worried, and I've certainly seen it happen, right? People are less likely to ask each other sort of personal questions or just engage or joke with each other because they're worried things will be taken. And I have seen it. I mean, I, I will just like joke and I try to be myself around people. And you do see people just taking offense to things that are just sort of totally benign. And it's like, it creates this environment of like everybody walking on eggshells all the time. And the thing is, right? Like if you're talking to people who are different than you, that communication takes time and effort, right? When you have people right. that come from all kinds and of trust. different backgrounds and trust, right? You have to trust, trust the other. And trust is not, go ahead. Yeah, it sounds like you're going to say what I was going to say. So you, you say it. Like, you know, we all come from, we all bring these lenses to any context, right? And so people, you know, we might be using the same words, but we might mean certain different things. And I think people don't even ask each other, like, what did you mean by that? If they think something is being said that they don't agree with, it's just people just shut out. And so I think it's just creating the exact opposite of what people really want. If you really want sort of a more inclusive, and welcoming environment, you want people to be able to engage with each other freely without being worried about, oh, am I going to offend X, Y, and Z? And Yeah. One of the things I noticed you know, on campus in the last couple of years, and I think it has actually gotten a little bit better in the last year, but it, you know, since 2020. So first there was this movement of you know, don't offend anybody, prosecute every offense, however small. And then to your point, one of the big responses or consequences of that was mass disengagement. <laughs> And then sometimes, you know, the, the same people who were arguing for more judicious prosecution of offense were mm -hmm. then saying, why is there no community? At some point, it gets to the point where like, you don't even, people don't even want to have that conversation, right? Because it just, what's the point? I can just find some other community. And then that really degrades but the, the, and that does the vibrancy self, of the workplace. That but. leads to self-segregation, right? You will yeah. end up only talking to people that are exactly like you because then you don't have to worry about being taken, it, it, you know, out of context or being misinterpreted. And there was actually a, a study I was reading yesterday that documented this. They were looking at between 2015 and 2017, there was an increase mm -hmm. in social segregation sort among on every yeah. type of line you can imagine, right? So mm. politics, race, et cetera. Who does that harm? That harms the people with the least social capital. It's like a tragically ironic, perverse effect on the very communities that we're, we're supposed to be trying to help. There are two broad topics that I wanted to get your, mm -hmm. your take on related to the HXA campus community. So our HXA campus community at Boulder has three broad objectives. One is to role model the HXA values on campus. You know, partly I think a point you made earlier, right? You phrased it slightly differently, but I, I, the way I would phrase it and have sometimes phrased it in, in private conversations is, you know, we want to make it normal to be normal again. I'm a, you know, politically unaffiliated, moderate Canadian who's like anti-gun and pro-state healthcare. Like I shouldn't be an edgelord, you know, conservative passer but who decides what campus. normal is, Matt? Right. I think it's sort of, you know, it's white supremacist to say that your normal is normal. That's a, actually a fair critique. I mean, with with obviously a very uh, probably unfairly racially charged undertone. <laughs> but I think your point, right, about like, so, you know, the definition of normal is, you know, basically modal, right? If you ask Andrew right. Yang in his book, The Roar on Normal People, a couple of responses to that. I think that it should be anybody of any view should be free and feel comfortable to civilly engage and express their views. I think in the context of an institution that is supposed to be creating a meeting space for people from all walks of life and all different views, I think that a modal person, a person with kind of roughly modal politics 
if they seem extreme or strange, that's a problem. That's a mm-hmm. sign of a problem. It's not that, you know, no, that modal political people like me have any more right than anybody else to express our views in it. So I'm glad that you've kind of raised that challenge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I think if the climate is so extreme that what's modal seems fringe, we have a very distorted force field that's probably going to severely limit our ability to mm-hmm. constructively discuss things. And it's not just, you know, the idea that the median voter is a, or the modal political person is like an upper middle class white man, which I happen mm-hmm. to be. This is not actually true. The median mm-hmm. voter in the US is a Christian, middle class, suburban, you know, non college educated, working class person. He probably is privilege in some ways, but not a paragon of privilege in other ways. It's also the case that the most racially and economically diverse political groups are the moderates. The extremes are the richest, whitest, and most educated on both sides. People, I think people kind of know that that's true or guess that that's true about the right on campus, but most people are surprised to learn that on the left. So for example, mm-hmm. you know, white Democrats were much more supportive of defunding the police than black right. Democrats. Because they're it's not the ones who are why, being affected right? by less policing, Ex- right? Exactly. If you're somebody who's disadvantaged, yeah. politics is visceral to your life. Right. If you're a privileged, educated you know, pundit, politics is a shirt that you wear. And you want to make yeah. sure that your shirt yeah. is nicer and more attention grabbing than everyone else's shirt. Maybe even you want it to be different from everyone else's shirt so people notice you, which kind of tends you towards being <laughs> extreme. Yeah. I yeah. think the idea that... So, so I guess what I would say is, I don't think that moderates have any more of a right than anybody else to feel at home. But I think right. that if moderates feel fringe, that's a sign of a larger pathology. That's a problem. But I would also reject the notion that worrying about moderates is worrying mostly about, you know, rich white people, because again, it's almost the opposite of that. You know, and think about it in terms of like religion. How many students do we have on campus who are from non-white backgrounds, who are from working class religious backgrounds, mm-hmm. and probably have mm-hmm. a lot of discomfort and a lot of unease around the kinds of etiquette we preach. One of the least well understood facts about American polarization is that the median voter is a social conservative and an economic progressive. People mm-hmm. in campus sometimes think it's the other way around, right? Mm-hmm. The fiscal conservative, mm-hmm. social liberal. Yeah. That's a very small group who are disproportionately elites. And the two heuristics I use to kind of get people in to understand that or, or to think about that, you know, one is describing the median voter as I did earlier, right? It's a non-college Christian working class person. The other is just think about, okay, if the median voter is not rich, you know, it's kind of working class, what do you think they prefer? Policies that help the working class or policies that enforce the etiquette of the rich class? (laughs) When you put it that way, it's kind of obvious. The other heuristic is most people would agree that the average American is not elitist. Okay, if you think about economic elitism, do you think of the right or the left? Most people would say the right. If you think about mm-hmm. social cultural elitism, most people would say the left. Okay, there you go. Uh, okay, so so but I model HXA, you. yeah, <laughs> model HXA values on campus. Just again, make it lead by example. Make it more okay for more people to kind of come out as, mm-hmm. as heterodox, which is unfortunately mm-hmm. a common term that I've heard. <laughs> to create a forum for our members to discuss issues related to the mission, and some of that is you know through public events probably, but some of that is private, right? So after our first organizational meeting, our first event was a private discussion for HXA members on campus to talk mm-hmm. about DEI statements. Should we require them in hiring, et cetera? And so kind of like basically creating a safe space to you know co-op terminology to discuss these kind of contentious right. issues. And then lastly is, which echoes something you said about your group, to support HXA members at CU Boulder if needed. Mm-hmm. And again, I think we're pretty lucky in terms of policies of free expression. I'm not super mm-hmm. worried about people getting canceled here, at least kind of by the university. I, you know, but, you know, we could have somebody who has a 2,000-person petition from their field, you know, which happened to, not at right. our campus, but in social psychology. 
I think there were a couple people on our campus who signed that petition. So of those three things, is there anything I missed? Is there kind of anything different or additional to that that you're doing on your campus? Modeling HXA values, providing a forum, both for private and public discussions and supporting HXA members publicly if necessary. Would you say that role modeling HXA values includes being okay with coming out as a moderate or like I said, I don't agree with the labels, but yeah, like as somebody that's heterodox, right? That doesn't sort of agree yeah. with the, okay, then I guess no, then I think that covers it. Now, I think the next thing I was going was gonna to ask you was about, have you noticed any effect of your HXA community on your campus yet? And just to, if you wanted me to seed your, your thinking, I would say for our campus, the biggest thing, it's, you know, early days, the biggest thing I've noticed so far is there's a difference between, I think the threshold for coming out locally and for coming mm-hmm. out like super visibly publicly are different. Mm-hmm. And I think that the biggest thing that I've noticed that's positive from our HSA community is it's brought some people out of the woodwork who would not probably be comfortable being like you and me, having these kinds of podcasts, being part of the writing group, et cetera, but are comfortable being outspoken in faculty meetings and mm. in you know faculty assemblies and just in kind of day-to-day conversation. And so that mm-hmm. I think and I think that makes a big difference to the point of, you know, showing that it's actually not a minority view to want to push the HXA values, right? Open inquiry, viewpoint diversity, constructive disagreement, right? Those are not and should not be kind of edgelord values. That's a great question yeah. because that brings me to a question I wanted to ask you. I mean, like what impact we haven't had much of an impact yet because it's really hard to get people out of the woodwork at Berkeley is what I'm Mm -hmm. seeing. I've spoken to so many people who agree with these values, like HXA values, but will not come out openly to support them. Like, And somebody said, because what it sounds like what you're doing is creating a safe space for racists. That's how it will be perceived is what you're trying to do. So what I'm facing is like this like- Well, hang on, let me unpack that. So the first thing that this person said to you was, you're creating a safe space for racist. And then the that, second that, was it'll be how they perceive. Those are really different things. Not that right? we're creating a safe space for racists, but that if like on campus, it will be perceived that way, that starting this campus community will be perceived as trying to create a safe space for racists. Yeah, see, my response to that is not so much about this thing specifically, but I've certainly heard that argument before against yeah. this kind of thing. Or I mean, other things I've heard is like, people will say, oh, it's like um, HXA, you know, and then somebody will say, oh, that right wing organization. Somebody <laughs> said that, oh, when you talk about a heterodox academy, people are like, oh, that hate group, like Jonathan Haidt, but like hate, so like the hate group. I mean, you know, a good pun. I, I can appreciate that. But it's all these like negative associations that I'm seeing that I think just makes people really unwilling to openly even though they agree with the values and would be definitely for, they will not openly associate their name. I'm really glad you asked me that because I I actually have had a lot of time to think about what the answer to that Mm -hmm. is. And I think I have a pretty good answer that I would love to share and spread. That's why I thought you'd be a good person to ask. I think one of the biggest misconceptions that feeds polarization is that the answer to one extreme is the other. It's the opposite, right? So if you stigmatize expressing huge majority views, right? So for example, we were talking earlier about how defund the police has probably contributed to the spike in murders, right? Which has literally killed thousands of people. I don't know of anybody who's been canceled for supporting that. I do know somebody who was disinvited from a big public lecture for saying that he was against affirmative action, which is an opinion that's opinion of 75% of Americans, including 55% of black Americans. Mm -hmm. So a huge, huge, huge majority opinion. If you stigmatize broad majority views on contentious issues, you do two things. Number one, 
you empower actual racists. Because do you know who's not going to care if they're called a racist? Somebody who is one. <laughs> do uh, people who are actually racist openly acknowledge that they are and they're okay with that? Probably. I mean, there you know, there's really, really fringe people like Richard Spencer. Yeah. But I think that maybe if you place if you replace racist with extremists, it's easier to understand. Right. You know. So for example, there's a group of people you know who include, for example, the activist Chris Rufo and other kind of leaders of the anti woke movement mm-hmm. who are spending something like a month in Hungary at the Danube Institute, which has, I think, some kind of connection to Orban's government, talking about and learning about, you know, how great Orban's government is. Orban's government and Orban's views go far beyond, you know, banning gender studies, which I believe he did, right? He was somebody who, I believe, said publicly that he was against the mixing of the races. And, you know, one of his staffers resigned because they said, you know, that's like right out of, you know, the Nazi playbook. If you're going to create a climate where people can't express non-prejudiced, nuanced majority views, you create a vacuum for those views that's going to be filled by people who actually are extreme, at least in some of the ways that you support. Like, so to put a finer point on it, do you think, you know, a good question to ask somebody who gives you the argument is, do you think the climate that you want to create on campus is giving Chris Rufo more power or less? My view would be that you're giving him more power. The version of that to the right, I was speaking to somebody in the summer of 2020 who was a conservative Trump skeptical Republican who had voted for Gary Johnson in 2016. So this is before the election, Trump's still president. And he said to me, he's like, I'm thinking of voting for Trump. And I asked him why. And he said, well, I'm just scared of all this woke stuff. And my response to him was, let me get this straight. It sounds like you're saying that you think that if Trump was president, we wouldn't have this woke stuff. I think that that's the, it's like, you know, if academia just, you know, more piously criticized DeSantis, he'd be like, okay, I'll stop. Like, no. I don't disagree with you, Matt. But the question is like, how do you even know what the majority view is if you have echo chambers, which I think is what's happening definitely on campus, uh, I think. That's but a good also, question. Because I, I don't think people know what the majority, because it, no, nobody shares. If there's dissenting views, they're, they're not getting shared. So it's sort of this group thing that's leading people to like really extreme. And they think, oh, if all you hear are these, you know, really, really leftist views, then you think that is the majority. Okay, that's a great point. So it sounds like then the viewpoint that you're asking me to try to argue against is a viewpoint where you think, you know, the majority of Americans are actually racist. Well, so suppose, right, if the take affirmative action, right, If, if I say to somebody, most Americans oppose affirmative action, and I show them the data, I'm assuming that there's some people that most people, even if they didn't know that beforehand, accept that. Now, they may still say, you know, that's a racist view. Most Americans are racist, which is a, you know, ideologically coherent statement. My response to that would be like, in a democracy, if you really think that like 90% of Americans are backwards, then what's your theory of change in a democracy that doesn't involve persuasion? No, I'm actually saying the exact opposite. I think most people, Uh, at least on my campuses, would actually think that, oh, everybody Actually, I'm not sure if most people think that everybody's racist, but I do think they think that, you know, the kind of opinions that you and I would think are mainstream, data would suggest are mainstream. I'm not sure how many people on campus think that they are mainstream. So to express them would be considered an extreme viewpoint in their eyes because... I mean, it, I think the like, response to that is data. And if the right. data isn't convincing, then the response to that is anecdotes, right? If, if it's extreme to not be the progressive wing of the Democratic Party... Why do they lose primaries in New York and Minneapolis and lose DA races to Republicans in Seattle and get recalled in San Francisco? Like, if it's really a popular view, that shouldn't happen. Yeah, I mean, and you know, here we're talking about sort of political things, but if you have sort of other, like my side of it would be sort of more social psychological issues Uh that you can bring up. And there you do see this sort of 
imbalance in how rigor is applied to research where right. a lot of that stuff will get questioned on like, how, oh, how valid is it, right? Like how much, how rigorous it is. Like if you have stuff that's looking at IQ or something like that, people will be like, oh, this is bad research. These are bad sure, data. Sure. Whereas the same kind of, you know, evidence right. that's on some race issues that people agree with will not get the same kind of questioning. So pick on your discipline. My favorite example of this is there was uh, two papers published by the same lead author in the same journal mm-hmm. who happens to be a woman of color, junior from a developing country, Al Shelby. Al Shelby. So one of her papers showed that racial diversity made scientific teams better. It's mm-hmm. been a while, so I can't remember the exact nuance, but it was something mm-hmm. like that. And then the other paper, again, same journal, same methodology, showed Major that, communications, uh, yeah. that mm-hmm. sometimes women who had female mentors were not yeah. doing as well as women who had male and mentors. That was an, and the yeah. latter papers got to retracted, right? This is great for its flimsy methodology. That's a great controlled experiment. That wasn't part of the central paper. That was an exploratory analysis, Matt. In my first year, I started a podcast with worse. another. It's even worse. Like the, the yeah. main point of that paper, we actually did an episode on it. The main point of that paper was that what they were trying to look at whether having a more eminent mentor lead you to have better outcomes right. as a researcher right. later on. So that was sort of the focus of the study. And probably and then, the answer was yes. Right, exactly. But then in an exploratory, they just found that having a female mentor had an effect on your outcomes. And that became this whole thing. Oh, it was awful what had happened. And so that happens. And the other thing is, right, like these kinds of arguments, if you say, Matt, oh, we can share the data and the answer is the data. People who don't come to believe things based on rational, you know, assessment of the situation will not be persuaded by rational arguments, right? You and I will be persuaded by them. But there are a lot of people that there's nothing else to do but except do that, but I do worry that, so right? Like let that- me ask you a follow-up question about that, because I think one of the most important tensions in the kind of HXA world, not pertaining to HXA as an organization, but if you just think like people I know who are in the orbit of that, mm-hmm. that world, mm-hmm. the, one of the things that they struggle with, two related things that, that are kind of similar or analogous, right? So one is, there was a study I read a while ago that was a modeling study. So, mm-hmm. you know, it could be wrong right? Wasn't, didn't have empirical data in it. But one of the things they found in their simulations was a key driver of reducing polarization was not everybody becoming more tolerant. It was moderates becoming more intolerant. Oh, we uh, become less tolerant of the extremes. Right. If the, if the extremes are more intolerant than the moderates, then there's an incentive to be extreme because the moderates mm-hmm. aren't going to punish you if you're not moderate. Now, I find that depressing. Now, it's a model. It could be wrong. I find that depressing if it's true, right? Because that's in some ways the opposite of what civil discourse moderates preach. But it's, I think it's a debate going on. And then relatedly, I don't know if you watched the uh, Stanford Academic Freedom Conference. I didn't go, but I, I watched did. it online. I did. Yeah, 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 um, I did. And there was one of the speakers, he was an older, older professor who was, who was zooming in in one of the first panels. And he said something to the effect of that he was pessimistic about academia because you can be a scholar. And if you're a scholar, you're, I'm I'm paraphrasing a bit. So I apologize Mm -hmm. to him if this isn't exactly what he said. Something like, you know, you can be a scholar. And if you're, and if you're a scholar, one of your lodestars is curiosity and openness to new ideas, Mm -hmm. or you can be an activist. And if you're an activist, then one of your lodestars is not openness to nuance, not Mm -hmm. openness to new ideas, not openness to anything that dilutes the you know, urgency and authority of your view. And he basically said that like, those are just completely incompatible styles. And there are so many people now in the academy who to him are more like activists than scholars, Mm -hmm. again, Mm -hmm. especially kind of in the non-STEM disciplines that he basically said, I can't see this problem fixing itself unless we replace the activists with the scholars, basically a, a dramatic change in the composition of the academy. And again, I, 
I hope he's wrong. I think that's a very dystopian view, but it certainly is a view that's influential. I mean, it's definitely what Chris Rufo is trying to do in New College of Florida, right? right? And, and Jonathan so, Hyde talks about it, right? As the telos of the university truth or justice, right? Because And so I guess my question to you is like, what do you think about that? Like, do you think there really is a tension between what you might think of as like a more hard-nosed approach to HXA values or else yeah. <laughs> versus like yeah. what I think HXA currently would like to do in terms of, you know, winsome disruption? Or is that a false choice? I could certainly be wrong about this, but I do think it might be a false choice. Like I think I think that most people, and again, I could be wrong about this too, but I think most people in academia, in education, in higher education, and also K through 12, I think, right? Like they're all driven by like we all want to make the world a better place, right? Everybody wants to leave yeah. the world a little bit better than, you know, you found it. And I think that's a good value to have. But I think in the academy, I think you have to sort of acknowledge that you cannot solve real problems unless you're willing to get to the truth of the matter, right? Like that should right. take primacy. Like you first have to be like, yeah, if even if we think that what is the effect of, you know, having a female mentor on the outcome, you know, of the of your students, if we think there's a problem, like we first need to figure out what is actually happening in the real world before we can solve it, right? Like before problems yeah. can be solved. So I think it's good to want to solve problems and it's good to want a better world for everybody. And I care about education, right? You do have, at some level, you there's this very, very fundamental assumption that more education is better, right? That we want everybody to have yeah. good access to education and we want everybody have to have the equal opportunity to get a good education, which is something I care about, right? But you cannot, you cannot try to solve the problems that exist if you're not willing to first find out what the truth is. The El Shelby paper is a really interesting example of both that and I think the nugget of truth that I would pull out of a steel man of what you might think is the opposite view. So I think if, you know, that paper should not have been retracted full stop. Right. However, I think it is fair to have the discussion before you publish that paper and when you're thinking about what the press release is going to look like you know, are there misinterpretations of these data? So interpretations of these data that are not accurate and potentially harmful. And I think one such interpretation in that instance would be don't have a female mentor, which is not what El Shelby was calling for, obviously, right? But you can imagine, I think it would be reasonable to worry about that. Now, the, here's where I think, though, it illustrates your point. A truth-focused curiosity, I think, would ask, what is the cause of those data, right? And I would guess two of the causes might be one is just the demographics gender demographics of faculty have changed over time and so on mm -hmm. average women are under more underrepresented among older faculty and eminent mm -hmm. faculty skew older you know mm -hmm. therefore like there may be a correlation there that's kind of right. under controlled for right yeah. and somehow is mm -hmm. it affecting mm -hmm. your your, mm -hmm. your perception of women i think the second thing is there's evidence from other studies i believe that women are on average more likely to want to select mentors who are women because they're women, at least in part, right? They're sort of, they're mm, more likely to have a preference for female mentors, all else mm, equal, mm. than men are. And that, I think, if that's true, I don't know, that's not my area, I don't know if it's true, but if that's true, and it's certainly plausible, and it certainly is the case in you know, every department I've ever been in, that female professors have more a higher female. fraction of female mm -hmm. students than, than male professors do. There is one study, at least in ecology, that I, I think it was in ecology, that I saw a few years ago that suggested that the main driver of that was choices by female students. 
mm-hmm. that female yeah. students are seeking out female mentors. So if it's true that female students are sometimes seeking out mentors on some basis other than how much they'll help their career, that might have a cost on average to their career. That's, that's good information to know. My, that was kind of my mom's reaction. She was really interested in taking some of these things. And one of the things that she said to me was, I think it was in the context of that study or something like it. It's true that there are specific types of things where you really want a female mentor. So for example, she said, like, when you're trying to think about how do I balance childbearing with career, especially at the beginning when there's a physical aspect of it, that's not just like, how do you divide Mm -hmm. the roles in the family? It is just easier for female mentors to relate to that than male mentors. But she was saying, you know, there's other things where she almost felt like it was the opposite. Like, you know, on average, imposter syndrome, lack of self-confidence is on average, you know, lots of individual variation, but on average, that's more common among women than among men. If you have that problem, maybe Mm -hmm. you want a mentor who's going to be your overconfident hype man. The last question that I wanted to ask you is- Sorry, before, I just- just Okay, good. Ask me something before. I just want to make a small point about the sort of misinterpretation thing, because Uh like, how could you ever- know like what your how your research would be like i'm not saying you shouldn't be cautious about what you're saying right in your research because we're talking about the l shebley paper and how things could be misinterpreted Uh and i'm like yes but that's always a risk with any research right anybody could take things you're saying out of context and the other thing we have to remember of course is that these are people in abu dhabi like to to expect them to sort of be aware of what's happening in the american academia and that people will take offense to something that's in your you know at the end of your paper as a footnote like there's an how, ironic how are you supposed to know there's an ironic yes. um neo-colonial aspect to that yes. story for sure okay let me clarify what i what i mean because i don't think i said you should think about it i don't think you shouldn't publish it i think you should still publish it but it's more like anticipating it so that you can respond to it if it comes up and i think that there are limits to like sometimes people take it take it so far as say like you're responsible for refuting anyone's interpretation of your research ever right i don't agree with that but let me give you a specific example where this did come up for me in my research. So I have a series of papers that have come out now, one of whose implications is that the hot climate change scenarios that are used by an enormous fraction of climate impacts research are unrealistically hot. The first of those papers, now the field mostly agrees with us. Like David Wallace hmm. Wells, who wrote the book, The Uninhabitable Earth, published an article last fall in 2022, basically saying that we're right. I think the title was something like Beyond Catastrophe, a new climate future is coming into view or a new climate reality is coming into view. But that wasn't the case at the beginning, right? At the beginning, we were sort of expecting this to be like a, you know, not necessarily widely held opinion. Mm -hmm. And I remember shortly before the first of those papers, we shortly before we submitted the first papers, this is like early 2020, we had a lab meeting to discuss it. And somebody said, and I think this was a, a great, I think this is an important thing to raise. Should you be concerned about this being misinterpreted and misused by climate deniers? And it was not a unfounded concern. So for yeah. example, I don't know if you remember reading about this, but shortly before he left office, so like January, 2021, the Trump administration put out these kind of quirky pamphlets on climate change that were full of included some things that, that were, you know, questionable, at the very mm-hmm. least in their interpretation, and, and a few things mm-hmm. that were questionable in their science. And mm-hmm. at least one of those pamphlets did cite this paper of ours. So anyway, I thought about it. I'm glad that I thought about it. Yeah. My response ended up being, it's much worse for the enterprise if we don't publish it than if we do. Right. Because it's fair to worry that people are going to, you know, pile on to climate scientists for 
probably misusing the scenario for a few years. Mm-hmm. It'd be even worse for climate science, though, if it came out that somebody figured out that this scenario was unrealistic and buried it for political reasons, right? That would right. be much, much yeah. worse for the, the yes. integrity of the field. Secondly, if someone like Donald Trump called mm-hmm. me to testify about climate change, that is good. I'm going to tell them that it's a real serious yeah. problem that we should address. I'm all, right. I may also tell them that there's too much catastrophism sometimes, but if they don't call me, who else are they going to call? Yeah, no. And thinking about it is great, I think, and and being aware that it, it could be misinterpreted is also great. You could even have, you know, in your paper, you could also be explicit about, hey, we don't want it interpreted that way because I don't, we don't think that the data can support that interpretation. If you really think that there's some clear, terrible interpretation that could be taken out of context, you could be really careful in how you phrase things. But again, to expect everybody to think of all the ways in which things could be misinterpreted. And again, these are people that were that are not in the American context. Like, I'm not sure how much you can yeah. expect, right? Like, it's sort of unreasonable to expect everybody around the world to have thought of every possibility of like how things could be. Again, yeah, thinking I'm not about saying it that great. Shelby did anything wrong. I'm just yeah. saying that that it's. I think it is fair to ask fair. researchers yes. to yeah. consider those things and think yeah. about them in advance. I don't yeah. think it's fair to make those a precondition for publishing. We're yeah. almost out of time, so I, I, want, yeah. I do want to make sure I get to this last question because I think it's I think it's one of the most important questions for our, mm-hmm. our younger our younger listeners. So I like to think of myself as pretty uninhibited, pretty outspoken, and yet I will admit that I was less, much less outspoken when I was a graduate student and a postdoc than mm-hmm. I am now. Now, part of that is that the world changed around me, right? So I was a grad student mostly, be- in fact, entirely before 2015, right? So the climate, you know, if you had asked me in 2012, say, like, what's the biggest problem in environmental science, I'd be much more likely to say climate denial than toxic wokeness, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Because <laughs> that was just the way it was in 20, 2012. And so, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel especially heterodox when I was in grad school. But certainly, you know, I started to feel heterodox when I was a postdoc. And I would say I was like pretty open about it in, in private with people I trusted, but I wasn't, you know, super outspoken, or at least I didn't think I was. You know, I had a blog that nobody read. Maybe I was more than, than I think. There was a, a colleague recently said to me, you know, oh, no, we knew what you were when we hired you. The point being, though, I did make an intentional decision to be more outspoken once I became faculty. And the reason is that I think even though cancel culture is a problem for faculty in some schools, especially at my school, it's a green light rating from fire. It's actually pretty hard for somebody to cancel you when they've already hired you. It's pretty Mm -hmm. easy, though, to not hire you. So I have to say, I, I really admire you and other early career scholars who are outspoken. And so I just wondered, like, to what extent you know, is that something that you've thought of? To what extent is that something like, do you notice a difference between like the faculty and the students that you talk to in terms of their willingness to speak out kind of for these, these reasons? Or is it different? And, and the, the only kind of counterpoint I would offer that, that maybe you've, you've thought of too, you know, one reason why I'm outspoken, you know, even though I don't have tenure, is that I think that, you know, if you play a stupid game, you win a stupid prize. If I keep my head down, you know, right. my reward is 30 years of an academia that I have right. you know, issues with. How do you think about it? I will say, I mean, I've, you have said it and other people have said to me, oh, you're very courageous for even when I started that podcast with a friend and we were talking about things that I think people were sort of worried about talking about things like these retractions and, you know, things that we couldn't probably openly uh-huh. speak about on our, in our department and people called us courageous. And I, I honestly don't feel that I'm not humble in any way. So I'm like, if I honestly thought that I would, you know, own it, but I, why not? I think, and I've given it some thought. So I think one of the reasons why I don't think is because I have nothing to lose. You know, it, it's only courageous if you have something at stake 
there's just nothing to lose, right? I don't have a reputation to lose. If I was like a, you know, big name faculty or something like that, oh, then you would be worried about people calling you X, Y, and Z. That's really interesting because I actually think you've hit the nail on the head for why more very senior people are not more outspoken. Yeah. You know, if you're like a full professor. Yeah. Why aren't you, you saying something? Yeah. yeah. There's like, what could anybody do? But right. it, it's, you're totally right that my impression yeah. is that it's reputation. You can only go down if you're right. like, if you're already, you know, the president or the chancellor or the dean or the, you know, full yeah. professor, like you don't really have that much more to gain, but you have lots to lose exactly. versus your, if you're an early career person, although I don't, well, maybe you do think of it this way, but I do think that people generally, especially early career people, do overestimate risk or, do, or underestimate kind of the benefits of risk. So academia has a, has a right skewed productivity distribution. Like the, there's, a, there's a long right tail. The top, you know, the 99th right. percentile academic is yeah. much, much, much more productive than the 95th right. percentile. So risk is good when you have a, when you have a long mm -hmm. right tail. And yeah. you can think about like one of the ways that I put it that's kind of less wonky sometimes my students is like, if you want to do paradigm shifting research, you're going to have to break somebody's paradigm. And right. that person is yeah. going to be probably famous and upset with you. And if you're not willing to do that, then That's you may not be willing to do paradigm shifting research. So there is that. And, and maybe I, with academia, like, I mean, I don't know, you know, I think a good example maybe of both sides of this coin would be somebody like Colin Wright. I kind of briefly crossed paths with in Santa Barbara when he was a grad student. I was a postdoc. I didn't know him super well. But kind of my take on his path is that he took some huge risks, right, as a graduate student. It almost certainly did hurt his academic career. It, it mm -hmm. almost certainly did significantly affect his chances to, to become a professor. But it also opened the doors for him outside of academia that he's, that he's following now. And I think that right. there's sort of some people who are more okay with that, like, well, if I'm outspoken and people like what I'm doing, even if some other people don't like what I'm doing, then I'm going to land on my feet. And there's some people who are like, yeah. no, I really want to be a professor and probably accurately perceive that there's risks to kind of yeah. being too outspoken. One of the issues is I think that there are a lot of people in academia who are just careerists, right? They care less about yeah. truth. It might be easier for somebody to sort of compartmentalize if they're in another discipline, but it's much harder to do in my discipline, right? Like, because we do talk mm -hmm. about things like implicit bias yeah. and all of these things come out of my discipline. So when I see something that I don't agree with, it's, and I'm, and I'm not, I hate politics. Like I'm not an activist. Like I really just, you know, I care about my own. I just want to put my head down yeah. and talk about deep philosophical questions. Like what is a p-value, right? Like that's my orientation. But when I see people say things that I think are just like patently not true or that are sort of, you know, not there are people on our wing, like I feel the need to speak up. So it's, you know, and then, you know, if I just keep my head down and just play the game, I don't know if I could live with myself. I have somewhat of a similar thought sometimes, which is like, I don't actually like conflict, but I find like subordinating my integrity as an academic, as an, an right. intellectual and as a person to somebody else's yeah. dogma so humiliating yeah. that that's right. worse than conflict. I will say like yeah. people call me courageous and I'm like, not really. Look at me. I'm an immigrant woman of color, quote unquote, right? Not terms I would use for myself, but both I think stops people from, or maybe like gives them a pause before they can like, I mean, they can level like, oh, he's just a white guy kind of criticism to you yeah. or even to my co-host, Paul, who I started. The you podcast. don't say. They, <laughs> yeah, but they can't do that to me, right? So it both is like a little bit of a, I think in some ways I'm less courageous than a lot of the other people who are speaking up because you know, I think people would be cautious about, or not cautious, maybe hesitate a little bit before, you know, criticizing me openly on that. And then that, that's why it does feel like a responsibility for me to speak up, right? Because a lot that's of That's interesting, yeah. Okay, so one last thing on this topic, and this is just advice that I'm going to give to our heterodox inclined listeners. One thing that I think has helped me a lot, I mean, I'm sure there's some academics, I mean, I know there's some academics who don't like me, 
I think that I'm more accepted certainly including by kind of you know the administration of my university who who've been treat, who treated me extremely well and I think one reason is that in addition to sometimes speaking out against the things that I think are problematic I also recognize in the context of climate change and this is one of the reasons why I study polarization of climate change and I've become an out, involved in outreach and, and engagement on this issue is as a heterodox person I am maybe uniquely placed to engage with, reach, and maybe bring to the table conservatives on this issue. And I honestly, I feel somewhat of a duty because I'm passionate about that issue. I, I think we need to solve the climate problem. I feel, you know, we've been talking about our positionality for the last two minutes. Just like you may find your, your positionality as a woman of color, heterodox academic gives you right. kind of a ability and, and duty to, to be heterodox. Mm -hmm. I think my positionality as a moderate conservative, friendly, heterodox person mm -hmm. who studies climate change gives me a pretty unique position in the academy to help reach out to and help help bridge the divide on that issue. Mm -hmm. I think it gives me insight into what questions to ask, research questions to ask that would be, be helpful in that. And I will say that even some of the people in the field, in, in my field, kind of on, and on my campus and other campuses are uncomfortable with or dislike my heterodox stuff a lot. Mm -hmm. An awful lot of them see the value in that. They see the the fact that I'm heterodox is why I have that value. <laughs> yeah. Right. And so it's not like you can have one without the other. And so I have to say that I've been I've gotten a lot more positive reception and kind of what you might say inclusion than than maybe you might expect for mm -hmm. kind of a, a, a heterodox person in, in a left wing field. Because mm -hmm. I think that they and I both recognize that I have a opportunity to make a difference in both the science and the politics of this issue that we all think is important. And so it's kind of like mm -hmm. the, you know, reduce intergroup conflict by cooperating towards a shared goal. And yeah. so I would mm -hmm. encourage heterodox people to also think about, like uh, Tyler Cowen had a good, I think he, even this is at the Stanford Academic Freedom Conference, he had a good speech mm -hmm. that's kind of a similar thing. He's like, if you want to be accepted by your colleagues, don't spend all your time trashing them, right? Also help raise money, right? And help do, you know, initiative. You think there should be more, you know, constructive dialogue on campus? Go make it. Yeah. I've made spaces for that, you know, in our, our campus. So anyway, I, I, th I, think, I think that there is something to that, that advice that like the, you know, it's, it's one thing to be, I think it is important to, to draw attention to problems that in, in one's institution that are problems, but also to kind of do so from a position of wanting to make the institutions better and right. kind of not just wanting to tear them down. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think that's 100%. And that's something that we worry about a little bit at, on our campus, because I think there's this overlap on people who are okay with disagreeing, but also disagreeable. And I think that's a problem. We should be teaching people in colleges how to disagree respectfully. I think that's a problem. Like we can all agree that there's problems that need to be solved. And but yeah, instead of tearing things down or being disrespectful or being, you know, very antagonistic when you're challenging other people's viewpoints or their ideas, I think to do it in a way that's sort of respectful so that you bring everybody on board. Let me uh, finish with a controversial statement. I agree with you in principle, everything yeah. you just said. However, right. I think in practice, we have to be realistic about the fact that academia needs contrarians, right, to function well. It needs people to challenge the received wisdom. Who are going to be dis overrepresented among people who challenge received wisdom is people who don't give a shit what anyone thinks about them, right? And well, what personality traits are also overrepresented among people who don't care what people think about them? It's willingness to offend, 
willingness to be edgy, maybe even sometimes willingness to be mean. I don't think it's a coincidence that a field with a right skewed distribution where risk is good and where contrarianism is beneficial and often rewarded if, if it's good contrarianism is also a field where, you know, people often say jerks are represented. I think those things yeah. have to go together and we have to decide how to strike the balance between them. Unfortunately, yeah. I wish that wasn't true, but I, I think <laughs> yeah, it no. probably is. The only thing I will say is that in that pool, people who, who are also represent, overrepresented are narcissists and we don't want those, right? There are some people that are just trying to do it because they enjoy being a contrarian. And I think what we need are more people who maybe care about what other people think of them, but have principles that they're willing to stand up for. I think you're right in principle, but I think in practice, you just have to draw a line, right? Imagine somebody showed, if somebody showed me data that said, you know, movies got a little bit less good when we put Harvey Weinstein in jail, my response would be, great, I don't care, put him in jail. Because Mm -hmm. what he did was so bad, I don't care, right? Or the Unabomber, I think, was like one of the youngest people ever be tenured in Berkeley's math department before he was the Unabomber. We shouldn't reinstate him. So like, obviously, you have to have, you have to draw boundaries and police bad behavior. But I think that if you're talking about like norms, stricter and stricter etiquette norms, I don't think you're talking about that. But, but I think that like, I think it is a fact that narcissistic, quirky, insensitive yeah. people are overrepresented mm-hmm. among useful contrarians. And I think that mm-hmm. we can and should still draw bright lines around really, really problematic mm-hmm. forms of narcissism and insensitivity. But yeah. I think we should also recognize that if we draw those lines too narrowly, we are Right. going to drive people out who are disproportionately going to be the innovators in the field. And again, I wish that wasn't true. I like yeah. to think that I'm not any of those things and, and still a mm-hmm. contrarian, but the I recognize, <laughs> yeah, right. Our listeners will decide. What would be your advice to yeah. graduate students who are heterodox, who feel unsettled by what we perceive as, you know, the orthodoxy and the, the betrayal of open inquiry, viewpoint diversity and constructive disagreement? What advice would you give such a person? I honestly, I'm not sure I'm the best person I to give anybody any advice. I think it's it's very difficult to have well-formed opinions on things unless you're willing to say what's on your mind and have that be challenged. That's a great, concise, elo- eloquent, million way to end the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Smriti Mehta, thanks again for coming on the Free Mind podcast. Yeah. And I hope that our listeners will go check out your podcast, uh, which will thanks, be in the Matt. show notes. Thanks for having me. This was fun. The Free Mind Podcast is produced by the Benson Center for the Study of Western Civilization at the University of Colorado Boulder. You can email us feedback at freemind@colorado.edu or visit us online at colorado.edu slash center slash Benson. You can also find us on social media. Our Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube accounts are all at Benson Center. Our Instagram is at the Benson Center. And the Facebook is at Bruce D. Benson Center.